Moses writes, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your powerful word. As Marshall highlighted, your powerful word that spoke and created the heavens and the earth. And your powerful word that you've given us in your Bible. We ask this morning that you would speak to our hearts by your Holy Spirit through your word that our eyes would be open to see Jesus, that we would be captivated by him. And so that you would remove any distractions, give us the gift of illumination that we might know you and love you more. We pray this in Jesus', in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So who am I? What am I here for? These are two of the the big questions of life. Questions that always seem to be stuck in the back of our heads. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we've all asked ourselves these questions at, at one point or another. Perhaps for you high school and college students, you, you actually you find yourself plagued by these questions. You, can't, you simply can't stop asking yourself them. Instead, all day long, or, sorry, you find yourself plagued by these questions. They're, they're all you can think about. You, you keep asking them yourself over and over again, either because you find that you don't know the answer, you don't know who you are, you don't know what you're here for, or maybe you're just not satisfied with your answer. I mean, it makes sense that we would ask ourselves these questions, right? Because we know that our answers impact everything we do. From what we do with our lives and how we view ourselves and others to where we locate our meaning and purpose. This search for identity is something that's common in all of our lives. And it's especially common in our current social setting. In fact, it's this, this quest for our identity that has consumed our culture. I mean, if we just look around us, if we look at the billboards, if we look at the commercials, the TV shows, the music, everything around us is all calling us to discover who we truly are. Now, it's not necessarily a new thing. People have always asked themselves, who am I? But what seems different today is the way that people are asking, them, asking this question. In the past, people have, have rooted their identity within a, a larger community that had a, a common set of shared values or beliefs. 
So when you asked yourself, who am I? It wasn't an exercise in expressive individualism. You looked around you, you looked at your family, your community, the the social institutions that surrounded you, especially your church, and they all shaped how you viewed yourself. But that's all gone the way of the dodo bird. Today, we no longer live with these shared values. Instead, all day long, we're told that we can be whoever we want to be, and we can't let anyone tell us otherwise. The most important thing is for us to be true to ourselves, regardless of the impact that this has on other people. I mean, just think of any Disney film proves that this is true. But as I was thinking about this sermon, I I think that Princess Elsa from Frozen particularly captures this mindset well. Just listen to these, I'm not going to sing them, but but just listen to these lyrics. I I could call one of my girls in, they could do it for you. (laughs) But just listen to these lyrics from her song, Let It Go. Yes, you're all singing it in your heads right now. Here she is, the song's reaching its crescendo, and she says... It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. There's no community. There's no family. There's certainly no God here. What we see is a perfect picture of what our society considers most important to us today autonomy, authenticity, individuality, and perhaps most important, freedom. But what makes matters all the worse is that this story tells, is that what this story tells us, the story that tells us we can be whatever we want to be, it doesn't satisfy. Instead of being free, we find that we become enslaved by our fears by our anxieties, by our constantly shifting desires. Just think back to Elsa. Yes, I've seen the movie more than once. But as she's, as she's singing this song about her choice to be free, she's simultaneously locking herself inside an ice prison of her own making, ensuring that she'll never be free. So what are we supposed to do? We want to know who we are. I mean, we need to know who we are. But where are we to turn? Well, thankfully, as we consider the most important questions in in our lives, we can turn to God's word, confident that it contains the answers we need to hear. And as we search for our identity, it's, it's no less true. We need, we need to look no further than the first chapter of our Bible, where God speaks to us and God tells us who we are. And as we'll see, our identity is summed up in this beautiful phrase, the image of God. And so this morning, I want to unpack this phrase by highlighting the three relationships that define what it means to be created in the image of God. We're going to see three unique relationships that will help you and me answer that age-old question, who am I? 
So first, what does it mean to be created in God's image? First, we see that it means that we are created for a relationship with God. This is most clearly seen in the uniqueness of man's creation. Look with me again at verses 26 and 27. Moses writes, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. From the beginning to the end of man's creation account, it is utterly unique from everything else that's taken place. Time and time again throughout the first six days of creation, we've heard this refrain, let there be, and it was so. But at the beginning of the creation of man, we hear, let us make man. Hearing this for the first time, the Israelites' ears would have perked up. This isn't what they were expecting, and it would have signaled that something special is about to happen. Before we look at what was so special, I just want to briefly address this phrase, let us. Throughout history, some have seen the elements of the Trinity here. And it's possible that there's some legitimacy to this position as we consider everything that the Bible teaches about who God is. But as we consider the original audience, as we consider the Israelites roaming about the wilderness, it doesn't seem likely. Another way to read this, perhaps a a better way to read this, let us, would be to see God addressing the heavenly court, the angels gathered around his throne. Here we see that Yahweh, Israel's covenant God, is telling the angels about his plan to create man. No matter how you want to interpret the let us, as we continue reading, we see that the something special that Moses wants to draw our attention to, and that is the utter uniqueness of our creation. Mankind, unlike the animals and everything else that's come before, is created in the image and likeness of God. You see, we are the climax and the crown of God's creative work. And this is really stunning as we consider everything that God made as a warm-up. The galaxies, stars, constellation, the sun, the moon, the vast oceans, mountains and canyons, all of those crescendo and God saying, let us turn it up a notch and make something in our image. Now we see more clearly how this concept Now, to see more clearly how this concept helps us form our identity, I want to spend a couple minutes unpacking, really just unscratching the surface of this phrase, the image of God. Surely much more could be said here. But this phrase, this concept of the image of God, was not something new for the Israelites. During their time in Egypt and wandering around the desert, they would, they would have frequently heard the king, or most notably the pharaoh, being referred to as the image of God. And this is because the king was often thought to be the God's representative on the earth. They were considered to be the literal son of God. And this is, um, and unlike the rest of the people, it was the king alone who enjoyed this unique relationship with God. 
He was the one who enjoyed the personal access, the the personal relationship with the God or gods of whatever tribe or people that they worshipped. So in a situation when a king reigned over a, a large region he couldn't visit regularly, he would often build statues, images of himself to represent his rule and his reign to his subjects who couldn't see him. You just think of Daniel 3 with Nebuchadnezzar setting up that image of himself. Kings would often do that to remind the people that they were the ruler. And it was thought at that time that the gods set the king in that place as their image to represent that god's rule. So in the ancient Near East, when a person would have heard the phrase, the image of God, that's what would have come to mind. An image of the king and his statutes spread throughout the empire. But what we see here in Genesis 1 is different. Because here we see that it's not just the king who's made in the image of God. God takes this common understanding and he turns it on his head as he says that it's no longer just the king. But it's all men and women who are created in the image of God. This would have been amazing to the Israelites hearing this. Just think as they struggled to figure out who they were, nationally and individually, God wanted them to know that each and every one of them is uniquely created in his image. They all represent God and have a unique relationship with him. So as we consider the impact that this relationship with God has on our identities, I think we can see at least, at least two implications here. And the first, is that we, the first is that we're dependent creatures. Having been created in God's image first means that we're creatures who owe our existence to God. We're completely dependent upon him for everything. As Paul says in Acts 17, it's in him, it's in God that we live and move and have our being. We've been created by God to image or to represent him, and therefore we're responsible to him. This means that we can't be autonomous. We're not a law to ourselves. We're not free to create our own rules because this world isn't about us. God has made us for himself and he defines our reality. We're dependent upon him for our very existence and also we see that we're dependent upon him for our identity. This means that we can only truly know who we are when we see ourselves in relationship with God. We cannot know who we are apart from our relationship with God. As Augustine famously said in his opening prayer in his confessions, he says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Echoing Augustine, C.S. Lewis writes, he says, now God designed the human, the human to run on himself. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There's no such thing. You see what Augustine and Lewis are saying here? They're helping us to see that as we consider who we are 
as we search for our meaning, as we search for purpose, we have to locate these things in our relationship with God. Because it's only when we do this that we'll have rest for our souls. It's only as we experience our prime, it's only when we see ourselves as primarily being in relationship with God that we can experience true happiness and peace. I mean, it's really saddening, but it's, it's no surprise really that in a world that has declared the death of God, so many people live their lives completely devoid of meaning and peace completely devoid of any sort of of happiness. Perhaps you're here and you can relate. You've been trying to live your life apart from God, searching after happiness and meaning on your own. You've tried alcohol, money, relationships, power, drugs, And no matter what it is, no matter where you search, nothing seems to satisfy. Everything comes up short. As Lewis said, it's not there. There's no such thing. If that's you, that's you this morning, if you feel like you can relate, I just want to ask you to consider what it would look like for you to see yourself as someone created in the image of God, created by God, created for God. Because apart from this understanding, like a ship without a sail, unable to reach its destination, you'll continue drifting along, never knowing who you are, never finding meaning or peace. First, we see that we we are dependent creatures. But secondly, having been created in the image of God, we see that we're creatures of dignity. This has massive practical implications for us as we consider how we see ourselves and how we see others. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're you're tempted to think that you don't have any value as a person. Maybe because of your childhood, a, a past relationship, or something else altogether, you're convinced that you're unimportant and insignificant. But the fact that we've been created in the image of God screams of our Mm self-worth. Just think of what the Israelites, just think of the Israelites who were tempted to think of themselves, uh, who were tempted to think of themselves as they wandered around the wilderness. They were surrounded by nations that were bigger and more powerful than they were. Just think of how they would have viewed themselves. And it's into this situation that God reveals that all of humanity, male and female, possess the dignity that the ancients bestowed on kings only. We are all royalty. We're all created in the image of God. And as God's image bearer, you have a dignity that is derived from God. It's not dependent upon you or what anyone else says. God is telling us through Moses that all of humanity, every single person on earth, has value and dignity that is intrinsic to who they are because we've been created in the image of God. This morning, if you're here and and you, you find that a fight to believe that, if you find yourself struggling with believing that you're an important or valuable person, 
just want to remind you what God says of you. You are created in his image. And because of who he is and what he says of you, you have worth, you have value and meaning. And, th- and this shouldn't just impact how we see ourselves, but also how we see others. Because the same inherent value and dignity and worth that God is saying is true of you is also true of everyone else. Our culture's warped standards of beauty, of talent, of celebrity, wealth, and power, they have no claim on a person's value. But each person has a distinct ability to radiate the infinite and divine image of God. Together we shine forth the glory of God. I think C.S. Lewis puts it well. He says that there are no ordinary people. He says, you have never talked to a mere mortal. Let that sink in. Does that shape how you view other people? I find this to be such a struggle in my own heart. I am so quick to judge and look down on others. I am so quick to jump to conclusions and judge other people in their lives, whether, whether I'm just in the store and I see someone walking, whether I see someone coming in out of a Starbucks, I am just so quick to judge others. But when we look down on others, whether it's because they're old, perhaps they're weak, They don't fit into our circles. Maybe for you, it's those who are of a different race. When we do this, we deny the dignity of those who have been made in the image of God. And that dishonors him. So how are you doing here? As you view others, what's what's the grid? What's the lens that you're using as you look at others? Does the first thing that pop in your mind that this is a fellow image bearer of God who has value and dignity? Are you quick to judge and put them down? Well, church, I just want to keep growing in this area. God's been highlighting this for me this past week. There is grace for us here, but I think it's an important message we need to hear. So we see here that first, the image of God helps us define who we are as we first see that we've been created for a relationship with God, as those who are dependent upon him and have inherent dignity. But secondly, we see that we were also created for relationship with others. As God created man in his image, he didn't create him isolated and alone, but he created him in community. Look again at verses 27 and 28. We read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We're not meant to be isolated beings who are complete in ourselves. But we need the fellowship of others to be who God has created us to be. We see that this point is made even more clear in Genesis chapter 2 as we hear the very first not good of creation. I know we're going to look at this in more depth in a few weeks. But in Genesis 2, we see that that God has, has created Adam in his image. He's placed him in the garden 
And as God looks at Adam there alone by himself, he responds that it's not good that man should be alone. And so he creates Eve. You see, it's not good for Adam to be alone because the God in whose image he's created in is a relational God. From all eternity, God has existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each person in relationship with each other. And so it's natural for all of us, having been created in our triune God's image, to be hardwired for relationships, to be hardwired for community. We are, we are social beings. This reality hit home for me a week or so ago when I read an article in the Bloomberg News that was just really just one of the, one of the saddest stories I've read in a long time. The article highlights the rise of seniors in Japan who are choosing to go to jail in search of community. As the article goes on to explain, rather than than going home to their empty apartments, many Japanese women are committing petty crimes like shoplifting in the hopes that they'll be sent to jail where they can experience relationships with other people. There was one lady's story, one woman who recounted shoplifting over 20 times in one day, waiting to be caught so that she wouldn't have to go home to the loneliness, to the despair. I mean, this is, this is saddening, but it speaks to something that's fundamental about who we are. To be the image of God means that we are part of the human family, relating to one another as independent persons in community. As we consider our identity, the image of God shows us that we can't be like Princess Elsa, seeking to create our identities all alone. We need to to reject the expressive individualism that has captured our cultural imagination and so easily creeps into my own heart. Because we'll never be who God has created us to be in isolation. It's just not possible. Instead, God is calling us to look around, to look around to the communities that he's placed us in, and to allow those to shape and to form who we are and how we view ourselves. I mean, this is just one reason why we have home groups here at the church, just to to remind us that community is something that we're wired for. We are created to be with other people, and so we want to create context where that can happen. The image of God shows us that we're created for for relationships with God and for relationships with other people. And lastly, we see that the image of God reminds us or shows us that we were created to have a relationship with creation. Look with me at the end of verse 28. God says to Adam and Eve, he says, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In these words echoing verse 26 Moses uses two terms to define our relationship with creation. Adam and Eve, we see, were to subdue the earth, and they were to have dominion over it. 
Twice in our passage, in verse 26 and verse 28, God calls humanity to have dominion over creation. That is, God is calling man to rule creation. Man has been elevated above the creation and called to rule over it. And what's important for us to see this morning is that our position of dominion over creation it's not an, not an open invitation for us to, to exploit the, or, the earth's resources. Instead, it's a call to stewardship, as we're called to represent God in our cultivation and care of creation. For us, I think that, that means that we should be concerned with things like the, the destruction of forests, the irresponsible use of energy, the pollution of our lakes and our rivers, in the pollution of the air that we breathe. Now, this doesn't mean that we all need to, to trade in our cars for bicycles. It's not what I'm saying. Please hear me, hear me there. But what, what I think God would have us to hear here is that as stewards of his creation, we should be conscious of how we're caring for the earth. Created in God's image, we've been commissioned to rule the earth as benevolent kings and queens, acting as God's representative over them, and therefore treating them in the same way as the God who created them. I think it's this viewpoint that will help us to avoid the two extremes I think we're so often easily fall into, of either deifying the creation or of destroying the creation. We can easily deify the creation as we place plants and animals and other created things on the same level as humans, thus ignoring the fact that God placed Adam and Eve in the garden above creation as its ruler. But we can also be guilty of destroying the earth as we neglect our role as God's stewards failing to cultivate it and care for the creation as God himself would. So on the one hand, we see that God tells us that our relationship with creation is to be one of dominion, but it's also to be one of cultivation. This is what it means when, this is what God means when he says that we are to, to subdue the earth. He's saying that we're to explore the resources of the earth and to cultivate its land, its plants, and its animals. But this also speaks to what theologians have called our, our cultural mandates. That is the command that God has given us to develop God-glorifying culture. You see, we, we have been created in the image of God to cultivate the world, not only by planting crops, but also by creating cultures. We, do that, we see this early in Genesis 4, and we see it as we were called to develop civilizations, build bridges, compose music, as we write poetry and other works of literature, as we conceive of new cuisines, or as we invent or improve things. These are all acts of cultural creation. As we do these things, we're fulfilling God's call to subdue the earth. See, the human race was never meant to be stagnant. We were, we were created with great potential and placed in a cosmos of great potentiality. Now, you might be wondering, how in the world does our creation, does our relationship with creation speak to our identity? But I think that our relationship with creation, especially as we consider our calling to develop and build God-glorifying cultures, 
touches on our very purpose. You see, God has created us with the purpose of imaging him, of representing him to those around us. And this includes the act of creating. Now, we don't create like God. We're not creating out of nothing. But as we work is to create and as we work to invent, we're doing what God has called us to do. We're doing what God has created us to do. So having looked at the image of God, we can, we can see that this phrase, this, this concept is meant to inform our identity as it shows us that we were created for a relationship with God. We were created for relationships with others and we were created for a relationship with creation. It's as all three of these relationships are functioning for us that we'll be able to see who we truly are. As these relationships are functioning for us, that we'll be able to answer that question, who am I? But unfortunately, we know that our story doesn't end here. We know what happens next. We see that Adam and Eve ate the fruit, disobeying God. And as a result, the image of God in us has become distorted. It's become cracked. We haven't, we haven't lost this image but it doesn't work like it should. One author I read, I can't remember who it was, he, he, he said that the image of God is, is confused in us. We see this as those created for a relationship with God. We've been created to find our meaning and our identity and our relationship with God. And yet in our confused image, we turn and worship idols. I mean, this is a complete turning upside down of our original relationship with God. We were made in God's image to worship him. And instead we find that we are creating our own idols in our own image and worshiping them. It just seems so foolish, but this is, this is what sin has done to us. It's it cracked the image of God in us as we, as we no longer worship God as we should. And we see this, this distorted image in our relationship with others. Instead of seeing our communities as essential to who we are, we all too often we think that we don't, we don't need others. We don't need other people involved in our lives. Other people don't, don't speak to who we are, to who God would have us to be. All too often we're tempted to, to want to create our own identity in, our, in isolation from others. And lastly, we see that this, this corrupts our relationship with creation, where instead of finding meaning and fulfillment in the cultural mandate, we neglect God's resources. We, we destroyed what he's called us to cultivate. It's not, a, it's not a pretty picture. As we sit here as, as humans created in the image of God and yet fallen, yet having this distorted image, we find that it makes it even harder for us to find our identity. It makes it even harder for us to answer that question, who am I? But thankfully, we have hope. Because as the story continues, we see that Jesus has come as the perfect image of God. Listen to how Paul describes Jesus in Colossians 1. He writes, he, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. 
While being 100% God, Jesus was also the perfect human who perfectly imaged God throughout his entire life in relationship with the Father, in relationship with others, and in relationship with creation. And because of what he did, he's made it possible for us to be renewed to our original creation. Jesus' mission is to restore humanity to our original trajectory, to repair what was broken in the fall. And so by trusting in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the image of God is restored in us. So that as we become more and more like Jesus, as, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, as we become more transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another, we are also becoming more and more human. We're becoming more and more who we're created to be. So this is what God is doing in each of our lives. God's at work in us, shaping us as his representatives on earth, those who have been created in his image, in relationship with him, and also with our fellow human beings as we seek to carry out our original cultural mandate. So who are we? How do we know who we are? Well, church, as we see in Genesis 1, as we see in this phrase, the image of God, it's only as we see ourselves in relationship with God, in relationships with others, and in relationship with creation that we'll be able to discover who we are. So in just a minute, as we, as we close our service, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper.